Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Today, I am excited to be in conversation with Audra Wilson, the president and CEO of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law, whose goal is to build a future free from racism, poverty, and the interlocking systems designed to keep those inequities alive. From litigating and shaping policy in Illinois to training and convening multi-state networks of public interest attorneys, the Shriver Center on Poverty Law works with and for the communities they serve to make equal justice and economic opportunity a reality. Audra, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Thanks, Kristen, for having me. I always like to start these teas with some of the foundational questions. And so I would like to start with you. What is your definition of economic justice? So economic justice for me as coming from an anti-poverty organization is really, it's pretty simple. It's about the ability of individuals to be able to, to sustain themselves and their families um, and sustain themselves having jobs that have growth potential, being able to live in communities um, with excellent educational opportunities, as well as employment opportunities. And so people can live their lives as, as, as comfortably as possible and without having to struggle and without being subjected to barriers or impediments to be able to achieve and to build wealth. And I think one of my questions too is, is economic justice the right framing of it? Is it poverty justice? Is there really no difference between the two terms? So is it, you know, we, we hear a little bit uh, of both um, around this sphere. And I just wondered if you have a particular lens on how you prefer to look at it. I'd like to think of it more than just poverty because the, the problem with talking about poverty is that it's, it's always relative. So when we're talking about poverty in the US, oftentimes we're using as an indicator of poverty, the federal poverty uh, guidelines, which are arbitrarily low. And so we use that obviously to index for programs that people are eligible for, um, assistance programs. But really, I think about economic justice um, much more broadly than that. It's the ability, for example, for families to build wealth. And we know that unfortunately, there are systemic barriers to certain individuals from being able to build wealth, which is the hallmark of living in America. The ability to, to build wealth and to transfer wealth to subsequent generations is something that we say is a hallowed American value. But again, systemic racism has prevented certain communities from being able to do that. So I think of it much more broadly than just poverty, because you can have individuals who may be above these, these federal index you know, guidelines, but yet still they're struggling to make ends meet. They are only one or two paychecks away from um, really living in a very difficult situation. So if we 
kind of confine ourselves to that term, and then we could very expediently say, well, this person is not living at poverty. Um, that doesn't mean that they're living the way that they should be living, particularly looking at American standards of, of, of wealth. It certainly seems to exclude those people that we hear about in like the lower middle class or along those lines of the disappearing middle class. Um, so it would, by I guess characterizing it as poverty justice would seem to exclude that those groups of people. Absolutely. There are a lot of folks that would be excluded. And I think it's, we get even caught up in these categorizations of, of classes, middle class and those lower and upper um, again, there are reasons why we talk about this. I mean, there's reasons when we're talking about um, programs and, and eligibility, and, and we do understand when we're analyzing um, poverty in the United States. But I think it, it, it's many, much of it is relative. A lot of it depends upon what part of the country you live. Um, there's so many different factors involved. And I think we get so caught up in these terms that we aren't really looking at the conditions in which people find themselves. So. I, one exercise I really try to avoid, especially, and you hear this a lot over the last year with COVID and the, the impact of the pandemic on our, our economy is that there was a concern that when we would give stimulus checks that people somehow are going to be, you know, what are they gonna do with those checks? And we're giving handouts and they're concerned that somehow this, a $1,200 check is going to, don't get me wrong, it makes a significant difference, but this is going to, cause people to want to stay home and, and collect checks. And I'm thinking to myself, but where, where does this come from? You know, and do you not have an understanding of how individuals are living and how they're struggling? Um, and we get so concerned about who should get those. And we look on paper and say, well, this person's making too much money. But again, that's very arbitrary because it's in relation to what? If I'm living in a certain part of the country where the cost of living is exceptionally high, or if I'm responsible for many people in my household, a salary that you might see on paper that might seem you know, like a, a pretty decent salary when you know all is said and done may be negligible you know compared to someone else that has a lower salary but they have far fewer encumbrances living in a, in a place where the cost of living is much lower so that's why it's such so difficult sometimes to have these conversations about poverty and wealth and acquiring wealth because we get so caught up in the categorizations, we get caught up in the numbers and we're not really thinking about how are people actually living? How far does my, do my dollar go? How am I able to build wealth and transfer this to my children and my grandchildren and, and everyone who comes afterwards? These are the conversations that we really need to be having. That's certainly a different lens. I think at this point, I would like to point out that the Shriver Center has been working on these issues for more than 50 years. Um, and I, I want to dive into that history a little bit as well, because I feel as if not necessarily the focus has changed, but I'm curious as to how the how the conversation has evolved um, since since it was founded. So let's start with um, why was the organization founded and, and what needs was it attempting to meet at the time? Certainly. So the, we are an organization that um, we were directly born out of the war on poverty. Um, and our founder, which is Robert Sargent Shriver, hence the, the Shriver Center name, um, was the founder of the organization. And so the, the purpose of the organization, and, and it wasn't Shriver Center at the time, it was called the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services. The idea of the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services was being able to have essentially a law firm for poor people. 
um, a law firm, law firm where we were able to consolidate resources as we were advocating on behalf of the poor at a national clearinghouse of sorts. So that's how the organization began. Now, over time, it had evolved. I mean, we, we have a law journal that we had for many, many, many years um, that tends the National Clearinghouse part. Then we began to, we merged actually with another legal service organization um, right around 1996. And this is at the time when there were, were essentially the attacks on the poor. Um, um, so, and especially on legal services in particular. So when legal services uh, and the type of advocacy they could do were under great constraints, um, we were able to merge with an organization called the Legal, then called the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago. And several of the, well, not merge with them, but several of the attorneys from the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago had come over to uh, the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services, and they started what was called the National Center on Poverty Law. Um, and this was a very important merger because some of those lawyers had defected essentially because there were certain types of work that they could no longer do because the amount of monies that they would receive through um, the Legal Service Corporation was, was diminished. So basically, you know, they couldn't do class action litigation. Um, there were certain type of welfare lit litigation they were no longer allowed to do. Um, and so they felt constrained and said, well, this is not how we want to operate as lawyers. Many other legal service organizations, however, just decided, listen, it's better that we stay open than to try to fight this. We, we, we were worried about being completely zero granted. And so they, you know, they went on and that's fine. And we understand that. Um, but fortunately, some of these lawyers had come over, merged with the National Clearinghouse for Legal Services, which had been struggling at the time, and were able to bolster that. So that was the newest, the newer incarnation. Um, later on, as um, NCPL grew, um, you know, and we were still obviously engaging very much with um, Sergeant Shriver, um, we were able to adopt his name. And I was excited because I was a brand new attorney at the time and had a chance to meet him who's just a really amazing and dynamic person um, uh, for those who don't know much about the Shriver legacy. And so, and Special Olympics and, and all the work that he had done with the, as a director, uh, opportunity for economic opportunity, opposite economic opportunity, the OEL, I have to remember what that's called. Um, but we were able to take on his name and we became the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, which we've since condensed to the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. Um, but our scope of advocacy began to grow. Um, now we were not just hosting a law journal, but we were now doing specific areas of advocacy. We had two tracks, welfare and housing. Um, and within welfare, I mean, it was pretty broad, you know, the types of work that we were doing. Um, but then we also began to do much more advocacy with um, Medicaid. And so, if, so we were making sure that individuals were able to get access to quality healthcare. The type of housing advocacy we were doing, affordable housing advocacy at the time when I started was a lot of the signature legislation that you saw that um, as it pertained to public housing. So we were responsible for the demolition of the high rises um, in Chicago and replacement with, with low rises and scattered site housing, which are far safer. Um, and so there, a lot of the litigation that we did was emulated in different parts of the country. Um, and then, of course, we were doing just the things that we had always done with welfare and income supports and making sure that individuals have the supports that they need to support their families and so to lift them out of poverty and they had access to those tools. So that was the, the bread and butter of what we were doing. Eventually, we phased out our, the, the clearinghouse portion in terms of the legal journal, but all the other advocacy work has continued and continues to evolve. 
So to look at us now, yes, we certainly look a lot different. We're also a lot larger, which is which was really wonderful. Even from the time that I started from law school, because I'm an alumnus of Shriver Center and ended up coming back all these years later. Um, you know, so we had doubled in size and in our scope. Um, but I would say right now, as this anti-poverty organization, we have these different tracks and um, now different um, teams that work on these issues. But I would say at our core, it's still about economic justice, health justice, and particularly healthcare. And then the newest focus for us has been uh, race equity. And I should just say with that, race equity has always been implicit in our work. So it's, it's just that we now have made the conscientious effort to, to, to speak about it and to say, we have to extract this because we cannot talk about alleviating poverty. We cannot talk about economic justice if we do not acknowledge the fact that there are these, these again, constraints. You know, we have, uh, when we're talking about race equity, we're talking about barriers that have been placed because of structural racism to keep particular communities from achieving wealth and from being successful economically. So it's very difficult to talk about how we combat poverty if we do not talk about structural racism. And so that's why I see the, the tagline behind me for, for economic and racial justice. It's the reason why we felt the need to articulate this. And it's the reason why we incorporate this into every aspect of what we do and when we talk about it so that people understand that you cannot extricate race from this conversation of combating poverty in the United States. Well, and we've had our audience will be familiar with this, although we have um, segmented our conversations by month on particular topics, we also have a lot of conversations about the intersectionality of these justice issues. And what you just described is exactly what we, we have been talking about since January. Um, and so I want to also, there's a couple of um, recent uh, uh, occurrences, laws, uh, um, legislation that is working through the system that I'd be curious as to sort of how the Shriver Center is, is thinking about these. Um, and one of those um, is the American Rescue Plan and the yep. other is the minimum wage discussion. And so mm -hmm. since um, what I, what I find, find interesting about how you all have segmented, and I'm guessing these are where the teams come in, is there's economic security, there's health, there's housing and there's strong communities. And yeah. so wondering how these new legislation efforts play into that work. So why don't we start with the American Rescue Plan? So I would say the American Rescue Plan is, it's so, so critical. I mean, it really is critical because um, many of the provisions contained therein, which we are quite frankly pushing to be permanent, make such an important difference as it pertains to combating poverty, especially reducing child poverty. I mean, it, it really, they are provisions that we think are gonna be important as it pertains to, to navigating our, our way through this pandemic and, and the economic impact of it. But really we need to be thinking much more long-term about it. So we were obviously very, very excited with the passage of the, of the American Rescue Plan. Um, the, but what I would say too, that combined with the issue, this perennial issue of minimum wage, you know, we have certainly advocated and, and many efforts in the fight for 15 and you know, we're talking about, because for folks who aren't aware right now, the federal minimum wage has not moved since 2009. 
and I believe it's at seven twenty-five an hour. Mm -hmm. And those states obviously have the ability to to go higher than that. There are some states who, quite frankly, have said that until there is movement at the federal level, that they are not inclined to change their 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 minimum wage. Um, and this goes back to something I said from the very beginning: to think that depending upon the where in the country you live, you know, if you're not thinking about a living wage um, and identifying a figure that really is commensurate with the area in which you live. This makes the, the the federal minimum wage even lower and more paltry, and, and, and it's terrible because ultimately it's it should never be a situation where families have to work more than one job, two or three jobs to be able to make ends meet because they're living off of minimum wage, and that's unfortunately the situation in which we find ourselves. So we have also advocated for a higher minimum wage. Looking at living wages in Illinois, I'm in Chicago. We talked about the fight for 15, again, commensurate with the, 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 the living wage or minimum living wage here in Chicago. But these are two conversations that need to be had concurrently, because if we're really talking about long term growth and long term and true economic recovery, this is the moment. I mean, COVID was devastating. It transcended all communities in terms of its devastations, economic devastation. We have not seen anything like this, obviously, in 100 years, and so for, for most of our lifetimes. Um, I think the bigger travesty you know, from the pandemic would be to miss out on the opportunity now to really address those systemic issues, because what COVID did do is expose the depth of structural racism. It, you know, so when we look at frontline workers and essential workers, and while everyone was clapping and cheering and thank you for our essential workers, you know, as advocates, we were frustrated. We're like, well, you understand these are the same individuals who don't have paid sick leave many times, may not have the access to to, to employer-based health care, and may not be able to afford premiums. These are individuals who can't subject or, or, or don't know how to to, to get um, whether it's um, any sort of subsidies for childcare. I mean, they lack basic income supports, and yet we are, as a society, completely dependent upon them when we're staying home, you know, because of these mandatory stay-home orders. Who are the people who are the ones that are making sure that we can stay home? The very ones who don't have access to the just basic minimum income supports they need to be able to support their families. And they're also being subjected to, you know, a very deadly virus. So when I hear you know, the platitudes that are given, I'm like, well, you know, if you really, really are concerned about essential workers and frontline workers, then we really need to take advantage of this moment right now about making these, these income supports that came through the American Rescue Plan permanent. And because this is a great way for us to actually make a true dent in, in poverty in the United States. So that's what we are pushing as advocates, so for people to not lose sight of the, the gains that we've made through these, what seem to be temporary provisions, the stimulus checks and the passage of the act, that could really actually go a long way in, in helping Americans. Hmm. I think one of the arguments that I have often heard against raising the, min the minimum wage is that it disproportionately impacts small and medium-sized businesses and that those types of businesses, which are the majority of businesses in the United States, will struggle um, with a $15 minimum wage. And so I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that. Now that I have someone I can ask about this question, yeah. <laughs> I would love to love to know just sort of, are we thinking about that incorrectly? Is there, is there that danger? And is that danger? Let me rephrase this a little bit. I'm sure that there are some businesses that could not handle a minimum wage of $15. 
I guess is that are there enough of them that this is something that really would be counterproductive in that the number of businesses that likely would close or not hire people um, would counteract the the living wage. Absolutely. So I haven't looked recently at a lot of these provisions that have proposed, you know, fifteen dollar an hour. I mean, across across the country. What I can say, just just offhand, is that many of the provisions that have been proposed are looking at the size of businesses. So it is true, excuse me, that there are a lot of businesses um, in neighborhoods. So people who are entrepreneurial, they, they start a small business, they might hire folks within the community. You may only have a staff of 10 or 15 people. Many of these provisions aren't you know, talking about that size business. They are talking about businesses that have a certain uh, amount of revenue that would quite frankly be able to withstand a higher um, uh, salary rate than some of the smaller businesses that people are talking about. So yes, there is concern that, you know, could certain businesses not be able to handle this? Of course, and I think that's a legitimate concern, but I think it's also important for people to understand that many of these provisions are not talking about those very businesses that you're referring to that are hiring locally are very small mom and pop shops, you know, that are employing people, you know, and, and in a small cohort, uh, we're talking about some larger businesses that would be able to withstand that. Now, after COVID, some people would say, well, yes, even some of those businesses were struggling. Again, understood, and COVID was something that is just, has taken all of us, quite frankly, you know, a bit by surprise. And so it is important to understand that there's gonna be some time needed for that re recuperation. The flip side of this, however, is that you cannot have a situation in which individuals who are working for these organizations or these companies, um, even those that might have the ability to recover faster, still can't feed their families after working 40 hours um, a week. And, you know, and that, is, that is problematic. You know, we still have to make sure that there are these income supports in there. Um, and if, if not just the minimum wage, at least paid sick leave, other sorts of things to for them to avail themselves of so that they can work and support their families. So we do have to find that balance. And it's a conversation where we, it can't end where, well, that's just too much for us. It's very speculative to say, well, we're just not going to hire and we're not going to do whatever. Are there some businesses that might try to pivot or uh, cut down hours or do other things to, to circumvent? Yes, there might be. But it's a little bit speculative right now to say what's going to happen if we were to implement this. Um, um, minimum, a, a higher minimum wage or $15 an hour in the case of those that are pushing for 15. That makes sense. Well, and this ties into one of your focus areas on the strong communities um, really made me think deeper about some of the hidden costs of, 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 of living, really, um, and uh, just um, how that plays into, and I feel like that's sort of a corollary to this conversation of um, you know, when we talk about, and I'm trying to think, I, you know, recently, I think there was something about the fees needing to pay to get a license or something along that line, you know, how that impacts people of a certain income level. Um, and so I just, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the hidden costs and just some, you know, things that maybe we should be thinking about or paying attention to, or that we might be seeing in the news at the moment as yeah. to, yeah, let me really think of how this factors into the economic justice conversation. So sometimes I can be a little bit glib, so I will in this moment when I say it costs money to be poor. I mean, it, in a nutshell, I mean, it's bad enough if you don't have a lot of income, you don't have 
a lot of wealth. It actually costs money to be poor. So what you're referring to is fines and fees. And yes, there are oftentimes people with lower incomes are finding themselves subject to more fines and fees than people who are of, of higher incomes. So whether it's um, the fees that they pay for banking because they can't keep a minimum balance or of a thousand dollars or so, so they incur higher fees there. Um, fines that they may pay. I live in Chicago. Um, it's interesting, there's been a lot of, there was a sort of moratorium during the heart of COVID, the height of COVID for, I think, uh, red light cameras mm -hmm. um, and fees, or, or there was a period where people could have certain things forgiven when they incurred um, um, infractions and, and they had um, fines. Now, it's interesting, not only have those been reinstated, the, the fee level, at which, so if, if you were driving, it used to be if you're driving 10 miles over, over the speed limit, the camera would go off and you get a certain fee. Now it's been reduced down to like six miles an hour over the speed limit. Now, someone might say, yeah, you're speeding. Well, what's the big deal? But the point is, it's interesting because it's where the cameras are located. It's the fact that the threshold is lowered now. And it's yet another way to be able to capture, you know, these fines from, from individuals. So this is what I mean by fines and fees, little places where we're adding sort of these fees and fines, and more often than not, they are directed towards low-income people. And so these are the, now, especially in the criminal justice realm, you have to think about this as well. There are individuals who are languishing in, in jails um, before they've had their trials because they can't afford bail. And Illinois just has sweeping criminal justice reform, including the elimination of cash bond. And that was very important because you have individuals who simply by virtue of being low income, that they now are, you know, they, they don't have the luxury of being able to pay their way out and, you know, await their trials. And so they can be sitting there for, for weeks and months on end. That's the problem that we have right now. It is very easy to tax, fine, and fee those who, you know, who are the most defenseless, those who are the most of modest means. Um, to target communities that tend to be poor, like I said, with the cameras, it's not a coincidence that the cameras are also in some of the, the, the more low-income neighborhoods or predominantly Black or predominantly Latino neighborhoods and not in some of the more affluent areas. I, I dare find a, um, a red light camera in some of the more the wealthier areas in Chicago. So that, that's what we're actually dealing with right now when you hear about fines and fees. Well, and that's interesting. It's a little bit of the concept of almost a debtor's prison, um, you know, yeah. not perhaps not no longer called that. Um, and, you know, I think there may be some in our audience who think, well, if you have done something that requires you to be incarcerated, um, what isn't this just part of the shocked that I'm about to use this phrase, the price that you pay um, mm -hmm. as part of that? Um, and so I wonder if you could help us think through that. So, you know, I understand that. I think it's, I think for me, from my vantage point, it's really taking advantage of that, quite frankly. Yes, I mean, we, we understand that there may be certain penalties that are, that are, are kind of put upon individuals for infractions or things that they do. The challenge, however, is that when you know that there are certain kind, and so so it doesn't matter what the infraction is, it can be something that anyone could could commit. But you shouldn't, by virtue of you know your your status economically, you know, be able to 
to completely bypass or not have to worry about paying any sort of fine or fee or an, an, an economic penalty simply because you are, are, are more affluent. Whereas, you know, someone who is less affluent, you know, and, and you have to understand some of these things, it's just, it, it's a disproportionate impact on individuals. And we were fully aware of this. We know that if there's more policing in an area, if there are more traffic stops in an area, then there's more likely, if there's more cameras in an area, if you are hyper-vigilant or hyper-focused on a certain neighborhood and you're looking for these sorts of infractions, that's what the problem is. So you can say, well, yeah, you, you shouldn't be speeding. I can, I can easily say that. But then my response would be, then why not have a camera? Because people speed no matter what you look like. <laughs> White, Black, Asian, Latino, <laughs> Native American, people speed. But explain why there is a disproportionate number of, of cameras or a disproportionate vigilance in certain communities looking for those infractions as opposed to other communities and how they seem to correlate with wealth. That's the, the issue here, not so much the infraction in and of itself. Got it. Okay. And one of the other advocacy topics that um, the Shriver Center has been working on recently is the public charge rule as well. Um, and I think that that might be a relatively unfamiliar concept for our audience. So I am hoping that you can talk to us about that, explain what it is, who it impacts, and the work that you all have been doing on that. So, I mean, I will start backwards by saying we are excited that the public charge um, well, I was going to say, I wanted to say about the public charge rule that had been enhanced by the previous administration um, has been overturned, which is good. Um, public charge has always been part of, of, of immigration law, or at least it has been for quite some time. And in a nutshell, what it's saying is that um, individuals who are seeking um, citizenship, you know, when we're looking at for immigration status, we are going to look at this individual and whether or not they are availing themselves of some public benefits of some sort. So whether it is TANF for cash assistance, whether it is SNAP or otherwise known as food stamps, you know, any sort of benefit within a certain period of time. So I think it was 12 months over a three-year period. These are things that are assessed in determining whether or not you know status would be granted because the concern is that you don't want an individual who is going to be reliant upon you know, public benefits. So that has always been part of, of, of our immigration law. The challenge, however, is that the categories were broadened under the previous administration and quite dramatically. And it wasn't, so not only was it broadened, it was also said people who might possibly be public charges. So it, it got very, very um, just open-ended and of course, this has a very chilling effect on American immigration. You know, immigrants here who are thinking, like, my goodness, anything that I'm doing could be perceived as, you know, me being a public charge. Um, and that was one of the, the biggest problems. And so, as advocates, that we were pushing and railing very hard against that because we we, see, we saw the chilling effect that it had on on immigrant working families. And you have to understand that you may be talking about individuals who are trying to get uh, citizenship, but many times they are the parents of of American-born children, and imagine now they are not allowing themselves to, to take advantage of these income supports because of the fear that this could jeopardize their immigration status. So that's why it was so important. But so the public charge was something that, you know, you heard talked about a lot more in the context of the previous administration and the fact that this was overturned, the, the heightened provisions, but the concept of kind of being dependent upon 
you know, public dollars and, you know, and government assistance um, in determining immigration status is, is not a new thing. Well, what I find, I think, most interesting about that is the term might become. And so how do you, how do you evaluate whether or not someone in the next 12 to 36 months might need support? Well, that's, and that was the controversy. Basically, um, advocates would say this now is becoming a wealth test, you know, which is, again, something that was contrary to all our sensibilities, that we're now trying to use wealth as an indicator of whether or not you should be a citizen. And so that, that in and of itself was, was, was very problematic for us as advocates, in addition to just the, the chilling effect and the impact on, on the residual impact on families. I want to remind our audience that you, if you have questions, please feel free to put them into the chat at any time. Um, and Audrey, you just touched on something that I think, and this has actually been part of every conversation I have had this year, is the importance of partnerships and collaborations and advocates um, in the work that you're doing. And the Shriver Center is instrumental in something called the Legal Impact Network. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Can you talk to us about what it is and what, I guess, sort of is the, the reason behind the coordination of those efforts. Absolutely. So the Legal Impact Network is essentially a coalition of over 35, about 36 partners that we have and within uh, 33 states of similarly situated, you know, legal service organizations. Um, and we convene, uh, well, it's interesting, we had our first virtual convening. We used to convene in person, but you know, this is a, another casualty of COVID, but um, we convene with our partners annually. And then we also have um, monthly and, and bi-monthly meetings with our partners um, to, we share best practices, we share litigation strategies. You know, it's an opportunity for partners to talk about um, the work that they're doing. And we're all doing similar work. And giving support to each other as to how we're able to navigate, um, and within our our legislatures, within the court systems, whatever the case may be. Now, the advocacy that we're doing, um, though some of it is federally focused, a lot of this is, is it depends upon what's happening state to state. So, the ability to be able to share best practices and to say, here's what's worked in one one state. Um, as it pertains to Medicaid expansion, for example, or here's what's worked in another state as it pertains to whatever the case may be, um, affordable housing options. Um, it's a great opportunity for, for advocates to be able to hear best practices, interact with their colleagues, learn from each other, um, possibly collaborate when appropriate, um, ultimately to be able to coordinate because we have now been signing on in some letters with all of our partners as it pertains to, for example, making some recommendations permanent from the American uh, Rescue Plan or whatever the case that we see with a change of administration, we actually coalesced and sent a letter to the incoming administration to say, here are the priorities that we think that you should have as it pertains to um, economic justice issues. So it's a, it's a great and wonderful collaboration and partnership. The members get so much out of it too. Um, we also have training for those members as well. Um, that we do through our Racial Justice Institute. So for many of them who, you know, have um, diverse communities in which they work, they are able to actually do um, specialized anti-racism trainings to make sure that they are optimizing their advocacy, that they are sensitive to the sort of unique issues and concerns of the communities that they serve. So we're, so we actually have those two national networks and we're very, very excited about it. Lynn, as, as we call it, 
has grown and continues to grow. And so we're looking forward to how we're going to be able to expand that. And notwithstanding our inability to convene in person, we actually found that in some ways, you know, going through, um, you know, Zoom or any other medium that we could actually reach out, that we have been able to um, to even expand the number of uh, individuals with whom we, we, we meet regularly to provide that support. The other thing I'll say that's really unique about Lynn is that oftentimes, you know, when we're talking about economic justice issues and some of the core issues that we do at Shriver and other organizations, the success that you have really depends upon the kind of the climate, the political climate in your respective states. So there are partners that we have that are in states that, are, that we'll, we'll say are, are more blue states or purple states. They may have um, certain concerns, but those concerns might be very different than advocacy in a redder state. So the ability for partners in similarly politically situated states to be able to, to coalesce and to convene and say, what did you do to advance this through your legislature? What were some of the impediments that you experienced? What can we borrow and emulate from you as we try to advance something similar in our respective state house? Can you share? So that's the other reason why this, this, this coalition that we have is so, so important. Well, and you know, I think even as perhaps states themselves shift from blue to purple to red as well, even that, how did you work through this with this type of legislature versus this type of legislature would also be valuable conversations. Do you also find that there is a strength in number? So if it seems as if all 36 of you are trying to move an issue forward that gives it more gravitas, does that elevate the issue even maybe to the federal level or, um, or you know, and I, I know that the governors talk to each other as well. So, you know, or the, you know, is there some, have you noticed, or I'm not sure you, you would have information on this, but have you noticed sort of just having that mass body being able to try and move something forward is also contributing to these discussions? That's our ultimate goal, quite frankly. I mean, it's, it's as supportive as we are to each other and, and sharing our best practices. Our ultimate goal is to be able to mobilize across states on key issues. And yes, there absolutely is strength in numbers. The ability to have our partners to call upon them to, to coalesce and to sign on to letters, to show that this issue is ubiquitous, to show that you know, we can, from Colorado to New York to Maine to wherever, um, that we are concerned about a particular issue and its impact on certain communities, I think is, is much more powerful. I worked actually for several years for the, the US House of Representatives. And so having worked intimately with a member of Congress, I know I, my member very much appreciated not only hearing when a, a constituent group would come with a particular issue, but to know that there are partners, there are other, you know, are there others who are thinking similarly? So when you could come with those coalitions, it certainly got a lot more attention. And so we absolutely are trying to leverage that with our Lynn Network. We have a question from Nicole and she wants to know, how is the Shriver Center pushing back on the narrative that wealth and economic success are based on individual work ethic? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, it's interesting. I did my very first, I guess you can call it my first TED talk um, in January, and it was called Unbuckling the Bootstraps Narrative. Um, because what she's referring to is just this, this narrative that does not seem to go away, even in the midst of COVID and economic devastation in some sectors. 
there is still this 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 pervasive notion that it's just hard work, um, you know. So so focus, effort, and hard work is is what's going to lift people out of poverty. And I have to say, it, it's 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 a very enduring narrative, even though we know that it is false. In this country, we we can cite example after example of investments that governments have made in individuals, you know, for the benefit of all. We think about things like the GI Bill, you know, and so many, and I'm sure many people who are, who are listening right now know members of their families or themselves who had, had availed themselves of the GI Bill and other sorts of economic investments that were made broadly um, in, in communities to be able to help people. And that's not lifting yourself up by your bootstraps. That's getting, a, that's getting assistance, that's getting an investment. And notice I don't call it a handout. Even the lexicon that we use, you know, a handout versus an investment. So we can invest in companies, but then if we're talking about investing in people, we say that they're handouts. Mm -hmm. Just even something as simple as that is problematic because we just, just intuitively have difficulty in thinking of investing in people the way that we think of making investments in sort of in, 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 in entities and companies. And that's really problematic. There's also the, the racial kind of the racialized overtones here. The, there are lots of investments that were made in the United States. In my TED talk, I even talk about, go back as far as the Homestead Act in the late 1800s, you know, as part of Manifest Destiny, when we wanted the country to move westward so people could live on tracts so they could acquire tracts of land for free. So long as they lived on it for five years, they improved the property, they were showing that they were making use out of it, then they could keep it. And about 25% of white Americans can dedicate some of their familial wealth wealth to the to the homestead act think about that for a second that was a government investment you know for a purpose but it, it it was mutually beneficial the country expands and individuals now have land that they could build and grow their wealth so we've got plenty of examples of those sorts of investments that are made where things began to turn though is that when non-whites began to avail themselves or try to avail themselves of these same sort of benefits all of a sudden, the, the, the parameters changed. More restrictions came up. We were trying to discourage people from availing themselves of these benefits. The, the lexicon changed. It became, you know, handouts. You know, it's like, wait a minute. Why did this suddenly become a handout? Because a different category of individuals than you had intended are now trying to avail themselves of it. And so that's where we find ourselves contemporarily, that... We, we know it's like, well, it's about bootstraps and we don't want to encourage people or incentivize them to stay home. The little money that you might be getting for any public benefit is certainly not enough to keep anybody at home. So for anyone who knows anything about the amount of monies that come through, whether it's with SNAP or with cash assistance, which is, you know, very few people get nowadays, you're not staying at home on that and you're not living off of that. But these are part of these very pervasive stereotypes and these pervasive imagery. The Cadillac Driving Welfare Mother, which is something that was, was created in the 1980s, actually by President Reagan, is probably one of the, the, the more contemporary and lasting images that people have. This notion that somehow people are living off of the dole and, and giving anecdotes of, well, I know someone who, you know, use, even now with stimulus checks, they're turning that into like a weapon too. Well, they use their stimulus check for this. And it's frustrating, it's maddening. So I would tell everybody listening that you really need to counteract those sorts of, those, those tropes because they are racist tropes, quite frankly. That is, people are not exploiting, you know, welfare. You have individuals, many of whom who are receiving some sort of public benefit are working, which is another 
thing that people don't realize. The vast majority of individuals getting SNAP, receiving some receiving cash assistance, some sort of subsidies are also working and they're working full time, which goes back to the very first thing that we said about what does it mean to make a living wage? If I can't work 40 hours a week at minimum wage, if I have to rely upon all of these other subsidies just to survive, there is a problem. And the problem is not with me and some unwillingness to work. It's that I am trying to work and yet, and still I can't make ends meet um, because the salaries are so low and, you know, and I can't avail myself of these sorts of subsidies that are meant to lift me out of poverty or to help lift me out of poverty. So it is very important for us to be able to counteract these sorts of narratives. It is very important to stop people and say, no one has a bootstrap to pull themselves up by, which by the way, I should say, um, just in closing this up, the whole expression about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, which was, which was coined in the late 1800s, it was, it's, it's sarcasm. It was meant to talk about something that is absurd because you physically can't lift yourself up by your bootstraps. But the irony was completely lost. And so it's like the expression in and of itself, it's more from just something that I'm like, you know, that wasn't its original intention. It was meant to, re to, to, to refer to something that was absurd. And, and I want people to really think about that now. It, I guarantee you can find very few people who cannot find someone, whether it's a family member, or some other place where they received an investment to help them be able to get to where they are, um, that they did exclusively on their own. There are very few individuals who can say that. Most of us at some point, whether it's through our family or some other sorts of benefit, have gotten some sort of investment in, in who we are, in our education, in, in uh, the professional opportunity that has allowed us now to, to be able to set us on the path to be able to, to achieve and to do good things, but rarely do people do that without any sort of assistance. I have to admit that the when we had our initial conversation to set this up and you were talking about that imagery of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, that has been on my mind ever since as I have been lacing up my shoes and sitting, you know, sitting, I'm, usually I'm sitting down on something to do that. And I was like, yeah, if I were to lift myself up by my bootstraps, I better be sitting on something with support because I'm going to fall down. <laughs> or it's so, going to break. The yes. strap will break. I yep. mean, quite frankly, you, the strap will break under, under weight, under our weight. So think about that for a second. It's just, it's, it's silly. We have a question from Helena um, and it goes back to the hidden costs that we were talking about. So some of the costs of being poor includes often a lack to access um, or lack of access to healthy food. And so is the Shriver Center doing any work to address food deserts or better access to healthy lifestyles? Absolutely. So as a matter of fact, when I first started um, at the Shriver Center, um, my area of, of concentration was, um, at the time it was called food stamps, now SNAP, but it was food stamps and food security. So um, identifying, because hunger is actually, it's something that a lot of people don't think of hunger in America. We always attribute hunger to someplace outside of our, our borders. But the truth of the matter is there is hunger and quite a bit of hunger in America. So yes, that is something that is a, a central part of what we do. Um, we work a lot in collaboration with our peer organizations. I happen to sit on in, in Illinois on our, our anti-hunger commission. Um, we talk about expansion of, of SNAP benefits for families. 
We also talk about using technology to be able to expand um, or to, to make it easier for individuals to apply for SNAP. And we do as much promotion as we possibly can. Um, we support organizations that are working to expand opportunities in neighborhoods, whether it's, it's uh, community gardens, uh, alleviation of food deserts. So we do a lot of work collaboratively on that. So I would say that is a, has been a really big part of a lot of our work over the years. Um, now I would say more contemporarily, it's about access to SNAP benefits, but also recognizing that, you know, there are communities for whom access to fresh produce is a very challenging thing. It's, it's curious if you live for people who are, are, are watching right now and you live in an urban area, um, I was very surprised to see how, again, when we were thinking about urban areas, there, is, there are food that is cheaper, relatively speaking, but that it lacks nutritional value as well. So sometimes when we're thinking about hunger you know, and how many meals a day, and that's at, at its core what we're talking about, but sometimes just the ability, you might be able to afford some of the food that's in the neighborhood, but it's not the fresh food and the fresh produce in the healthier foods that, that's, that's more um, accessible. It's the bad foods, the processed foods, because they're cheap you know, then they're easily accessible. And that's something that many advocates are very focused on as well, making sure that we have access to quality food options, not just food in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something that was also new for me in, in terms of shopping. When I think through, I'm like, okay, this banana cost me, you know, 99 cents. Um, that seems affordable as a general rule. And it wasn't really until I was doing some prep work for this, I was like, okay, my 99 cent banana could be a buck 29 someplace else or yeah. you know, even more. And so when you are in a situation where every penny counts, then yes, you would choose the 99 cent option regardless of what it is, um, even though the slightly more expensive version would be better for you. Absolutely. A great thing, though, that has happened over the last several years, though, is that using um, uh, electronic benefits cards, um, so EBTs, at farmers markets, which has been so revolutionary in a lot of ways, because now many of those families who wouldn't otherwise be able to avail themselves of fresh quality produce or might have to go to supermarkets that, you know, have them at a premium. And like you said, you only have so many benefits in this card now are able to use their cards in, in farmer's market settings and, and get that fresh produce. And that was such a game changer. Absolutely. I think one of the questions I have is, what do you wish people were paying more attention to with regard to this issue? What are What is maybe something that the advocates of this are really excited about, but doesn't seem to be on other people's radars, or if they could, if you could just get the public to tune into like this one thing, you could advance that in some way. What, what are a couple of those issues? I would say, and it, one issue that I think is probably the hardest conceptually for people to accept is the one that I started off with and, I, and I've said over and over and that there are barriers, systemic barriers to access to certain things, to creation of wealth. Um, these are woven into our fabric. And I would say I'm appreciative of programs and initiatives and efforts to address that, but I wish more people would really understand just how deep this is. So if you're not convinced, I'll give you a really big example. 
another challenge with COVID obviously has been affordable housing. You have been, you have mentioned of moratoriums for individuals who have not been able to pay their rent um, because they've lost their jobs due to COVID or have reduced hours. Um, and so housing is one of those places and I'm using Chicago again as a backdrop, but this could be many, many areas in many cities. You're talking about redlining. You're talking about literally putting restrictions in places where people could live. Um, so individuals, notwithstanding their income level, they may have earned a lot of money. They worked in the factories, they did whatever. These were hardworking families that saved money just like everybody else and wanted to buy houses and were restricted in the places where they could buy houses. They found that they could not get access to certain kinds of loans because of the color of their skin. You know, they were, were blockbusting, all these other acts to keep people from being able to, what we call the American dream, achieve the American dream. This has repercussions that, that extend generation to generation. Because for those who say, no, Audrey, you know, I hear that, I know that happened, but that's 50 years ago. But wait a minute, if we're talking about passing down wealth, and we're talking about one of the ways to acquire wealth is, for example, the acquisition of property. Then what happens if a family from generations before was blocked from being able to acquire wealth in the same way as a white family was? What do they have to pass down? And if they continue to pay higher fees for mortgages, higher fees for this, higher fees for that, even in the current acquisition, it makes it harder for them to pass things down because they still owe so much to the lands that they now have. So I think that's where you know, understanding history and understanding the fact that these are things that are built into our system and there has to be a dismantling of that at its core, not just sort of a superficial, you know, we're going to put a program in place to help some people contemporarily. That's great. I'm, I'm not going to, to, to complain about that, except I'm going to say it's not enough. And I really want people to understand that we're talking about a cumulative effect of the systemic barriers that have been in place that are still affecting families today. To think that me, I'm a lawyer, I'm a, even though I'm a public interest lawyer, finally I've moved to the food chain, I have a decent salary and I'm happy about that. Um, but to think that comparatively speaking to some of my peers, not only as a woman, of, a woman, but also as a person of color that I'm making less on average in the dollar. These are things that are built in and the cumulative effect of that is that notwithstanding my fancy salary and title right now, when I look at the amount of money that I've been able to, or the wealth that I've amassed over a certain period of time in comparison to even let's say you, Kristen, or you know, a white male colleague, and to know that I am a third or two thirds less, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Understanding the cumulative impact of systemic barriers and why we're still talking about it today is what I would love to leave people with. That's great. Um, and in fact, my recollection is I think the Chicago Association of Realtors came out in the last couple of years and apologized for some of their role in redlining in Chicago um, specifically as well. We have a question from John that I want to get to before we get to our lightning round. Are labor unions involved in the work of the Shriver Center and do labor organizations have a role to play in our contemporary economic justice discussions? Labor unions absolutely have a role to play. We have worked more with labor unions in our coalitions. So in Illinois, we most recently we were working with labor unions as it pertains to um, a, a graduated income tax, what we call the fair tax. Um, this is something that over 36 states have a graduated income tax, but we did not here in Illinois. 
Um, so that's one of the places where we were able to work very directly and collaboratively with our labor unions. Um, we were not successful, unfortunately, in that endeavor, but I think the exercise is really important and laid the foundation for our subsequent work. So labor unions are, especially in a city like Chicago and others, um, you know, where they are strong union towns and union cities, um, can very much play an important role um, in certainly advocating for living wages. And we certainly know that's one of the benefits of, of participation in unions, because, you know, these are individuals who are part of this are able to avail themselves of, of wages that are much more commensurate with the work that they do than they would be otherwise. I think labor unions have to be also aware, though, that even within their ranks, that we, we cannot extricate the conversation of, about racial subjugation and discrimination because that has been present as well in terms of the types of jobs that are available. But I do think that, that unions in and of themselves do wield some of that power and should be thinking about the ways in which that they can use that power to, to equalize and levelize the playing field for all of their members. Great. Okay, the lightning round. Yeah. Two minutes. Four okay. questions. We can do this. Uh -oh. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? I would like to see the um, making permanent some of the, the uh, provisions that have been put in place to help um, families that have been struggling due to COVID. I'd like to see those made permanent. Okay. What gives you hope that progress will be made? Seeing as many people as riled up and angry and frustrated and making their voices heard about kind of racial injustice, economic injustice, um, from marches to protests to, to whatever the case may be, that gives me hope that there are people who do understand and, and are engaged and involved and, and know that we need to be making better progress. Okay. Who else is doing good work to make progress? Ooh. <laughs> um, lots of people, individuals are doing, um, making progress. I think that there are, as a lawyer, I will say, I think there are a lot of law firms that, you know, um, and, and folks in the private bar who are starting to say, how do we wield our power and our influence, you know, to, to address this issue of systemic racism uh, and, and other types of injustice. Uh, there are corporations are beginning to do this with corporate social justice. They're starting to, to think not just in terms of just throwing dollars to make themselves feel good, but actually wielding and leveraging their power for good. So I do think there's a lot of different entities and individuals who are trying to do better. Great. All right, final question. What should we be reading, listening to? Are there, are there thinkers we should be paying attention to on these issues? Do you have any books or podcasts or articles or authors that you would recommend that we take a look at? There are a lot that are out there right now. There is one that just came out and it was from, I'm trying to think really quickly, it was a book about the economic impact of racism, which I think, um, and I'm trying to find it right now as we speak. Um, well, what is it called? I'm going to think of this after the fact. Yeah, so it it after as well. well. We'll post it. We'll post We're it. post it. It's a video. Yeah, book by the former head of the um, of, of Color for Change, who and, and what she talks about. Um, and oh, Dr. Ibram Kendi's another one, um, which I think if you haven't. Kendi, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project. Um, but the specific book that I'm referring to from the former head of the Color for, Color for Change 
talks about the economic impact of racism and basically says that people would be shocked to know that there is a cost to American racism to the detriment of all Americans. If we do not try to counteract racism, that there are economic impacts in our communities. And I thought that was extraordinarily fascinating. And I've been using that a lot when I when I talk to individuals to say, you know, there's a there's a cost to this. It's a price. And, it, and ironically, the more you try to exclude individuals from this American dream and availing themselves, it actually hurts all Americans and pulls our way of living, our cost of living everything down for all Americans. And so that's what I would say. And you'll find that and send it out to people because I'm just blanking right now because I'm on the spot. That's so no worries, that, that happens. The lightning round, that's one of the challenges with the lightning round. <laughs> yep. And Audra, I would like to thank you so very much for sharing your work and the work of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law and your thoughts and challenging us to think differently about and deeper about these issues. Um, we know that these conversations never really end, or at least hope that they never really end, and that we all have work that we need to keep doing. So thank you very much. I thank you for inviting me. I so appreciate it. I appreciate all of you listening. It's called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. <laughs> so remember that. <laughs> thank you all so much. <laughs> you have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.